Thanks for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to hear about how God is using Adventure Church to speak and work in your life. If you've got a story you'd like to share, please do so on adventurechurch.tv slash mystory. Also, if you'd like to support Adventure Church financially, you can do that online and help us bring messages just like this one to you each and every week. Now let's prepare our hearts to hear a word from God. But we are jumping back into uh, the Greatest Hits Summer Sermon Series, and I thought it only fitting to talk about one of the most famous and common arguments that you and I have with one another, and it is the argument of the GOAT. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's an acronym. I think that's the term for it. The GOAT. Greatest of all time. Greatest of all time. We love having this debate on many different levels. If you are a sports fan, I am sure you have had this uh, many different ways, whether it's, you know, NFL, college, who's the best team of all time, who's the best athlete of all time, and these conversations never go anywhere good, but it ends in, you know, blood and fist fights and all that with your friends, okay? Maybe you're not into sports, but you love TV shows, And you love having that argument with your mother-in-law about what the best TV show is there. Okay, maybe you're into presidents, the best president of all time. We We could debate about everything and anything. But as I was thinking about this argument that we have, I started to realize something. I started to realize that these debates that we have are less about the subjects or the objects of which we are arguing for, and more or less the perspective that we have, that our perspective uh, dictates our position uh, on who we kind of, you know, support and and think is the best. Case in point, okay. You're a basketball fan. Odds are you've had the conversation, who is the greatest NBA player of all time? And there's only two options. You've got the legend, Michael Jordan, and you've got number two, somebody give it to me, LeBron, LeBron James, LeBron James. And so depending upon what your perspective is, it's going to dictate your position, If all you care about is championships and all that matters is how many championships they've won, it's Michael Jordan. If it's triple doubles, if it's look at the teams that he had that he carried to the finals and you're saying look look at what he had to work with and how far he got, it's LeBron James. And we go, you know, back and forth and I realize that I've alienated some of you, so let me get you in here, okay? You love TV shows and you can't understand why your mother-in-law doesn't think Seinfeld is the best show of all time, but she just doesn't like comedies. She's into, you know, those dramas. I don't even know, like Downtown Abbey or stuff like that. I'm just listening shows that I know of. Okay. <laughs> and she don't understand that. You get these fights with her. How do you not understand? You don't like comedies? Are you not a happy person? Do you not have any joy in your life? Woman, strongly advise you not to talk to your mother-in-law like that. We go back and forth. How about technology users? How many of us have iPhones. iPhones, iPhone users, there we go. How about Samsung 6? Any users? All right, kind of halfway, that's okay. (laughs) That's all right. All right, so we've got iPhone users. We believe that, um, you know, we we care about a a cutting-edge design, the the newest technology. You know, we want it to be user-friendly and reliable, dependable, no unnecessary gadgets or gizmos. And then you have Samsung and all the other people that just like cool lights on their phones, okay? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's my plug. I know it's a great phone. That's my plug for for iPhones. Uh, This sermon brought to you by Apple. Um, We go back and forth, and we realize that it really has less to do with what we're talking about more or less the perspective that we have. And I know for a fact that this type of argument has been happening 
since the beginning of time. I don't know all the, you know, specifics of it. I'm sure, you know, guys would gather around and battle about what the best Mediterranean restaurant is. What, you go to Peter's Roadhouse? You, you got to go to Centurion's Grill, man. The Euro meat is always fresh. The vegetables are great. Half off apps after 10. Like, well, you got to go to Centurion's Grill. Okay, obviously I have little insight on this, but a lot of imagination. But I know of one specific argument that your beloved disciples had, and they fought against each other about it, trying to figure out what the answer was. And then Jesus, we're going to look at uh, Matthew's perspective, but in Luke, it actually says that Jesus kind of busted them about it. He's like, what were you arguing about while we were on the road? And they ask Jesus their question. Surely the Son of God will be able to end this debate. We will know the answer. But Jesus like he has done so many times in his ministry, refuses to give them a simple and direct answer. You see, Jesus isn't fond of answering questions the way that you and I would want him to. But in fact, um, in Jesus' ministry, he was asked 183 questions. Of those 183 questions, he provided direct answers for eight And of those eight, even of those eight, like five of them, scholars are like, "Eh, that's still like kind of beating around the bush, Jesus. Okay, but we'll give it to you. Direct answers to eight of those. And for those of you who know Jesus, you are nodding your head right now because you're like, that is so Jesus. I know him because I've been praying for the last 30 years about this, and he still hasn't given me an answer. That's so Jesus. On the flip side, Jesus loves asking questions. In his ministry, he asked 307 questions, many times in direct response to the questions that were initially asked to him. And again, you're nodding your head. That's totally Jesus because I give him one question. I get one prayer request here, and then I've got five questions coming right back at me. And depending upon where you're at this morning, this might present a big problem for you. Maybe you've been kind of on the fence with this whole giving your life to Jesus thing. And as I'm speaking to you, you're like, Jake, that is fueling my fire. That is anchoring my argument because that's, that's my issue here. My issue is that God seems to have more questions than he does answers. But as we're going to see today, Jesus refused to give a direct answer because he's focused on something far much greater than what the disciples know. You see, Jesus is not so much concerned about what his disciples know. He's more concerned with how they think. His theme might be how you think is simply more important than what you know. I'm sure you've experienced this on a personal level. The problem wasn't what you knew The problem was your thinking. You knew what you weren't supposed to do. You knew what you were supposed to do, but it was your thinking that directed you to take an action that you ended up regretting. How about this? How we see things is more important than what we've seen. And again, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, this hits home because you have a relationship with someone that you've never seen. But... By the work of the Holy Spirit, he has changed the way that you see everything. 
and what would matter to everyone else. Well, I just need to see him. I mean, I, I still, to this day, I'd love to see him. Like, even if I could just, like, you know, driving along, see, like, his picture up in the clouds. Like, you see people posting pictures, like, look, it's Morgan Freeman's face in the clouds. Like, that's awesome. If I could just see his face up there, that'd be cool for me. But we're okay with that, because he's changed the way that we see things. And although we don't see something that would seem completely instrumental in having a relationship, we're okay with it. Because the way that we see now, it, it doesn't matter. And so we're going to look at this argument that the disciples have, and that's going to be his mission in responding to them. Not simply giving them a simple answer, direct answer, but rather tackling the bigger problem, which is their thinking. Are you ready this morning? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for an opportunity to speak your words, Lord. You have communicated this to me on a very personal level. Um, and even as I'm speaking to this, I, about this, I am convicted, and I pray that you do the same thing. You're the one person that can take um, one message and speak to every single person in this room in an individual and personal way. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. We are jumping into the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18, 1 through 3. Let me give you a little background about where we're at here. Um, the disciples have been traveling around with Jesus kind of on his ministry tour. He is, you know, going throughout the land, healing people, teaching people, telling them that the kingdom, you know, of, about the kingdom of heaven, telling them how to live for God, you know, just blowing their minds. And the disciples are right behind him, kind of like his boys, right? Like Jesus, the Savior, is healing people, and the disciples are behind him like, Yup, yup, that's the Savior. We're with him, okay? And just verses prior to this passage, Jesus tells his disciples some really, really bittersweet news. And it is that he is going to be killed, but he's also going to rise from the dead. And in Matthew 17, it says that the disciples, their only response was to weep, okay? Fast forward, like, I think it's like 10 verses. Here we are in chapter 18, and they've got this argument, this greatest of all time argument. So obviously they were able to kind of like get over it. Let's see uh, what they're arguing about, what all the fuss is about. Verse 1, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who, say who with me, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, now I realize that I built up a little bit too much suspense for this question. It's like, what? Like, what, what are they arguing about? That's what they're bickering and complaining about. Who's going to be the, who argues about this kind of stuff? Like, I, I think, like, I remember one instance when I was maybe like four or five in Sunday school. And the teacher taught us about how we're going to have mansions in heaven. So, of course, I'm going around to all the other kids in the room and be like, my mansion's going to be bigger than yours. Like, in fact, you're going to be cutting my grass. Hey, you, you're going to be cleaning my pool, okay? And I'm like four or five years old. But here the disciples, guys that walked with Jesus day in and day out, are having this, this stupid argument and debate. And at first glance, it's easy to look at it and say, like, what a petty argument. They really had nothing better to talk about. But if we look deeper, this debate, this question that they present to Jesus was a big deal to them. This mattered a lot. This was a big concern for them because the disciples are asking this question from a perspective uh, that is based upon this religious system that they know of that equates performance with greatness. That, that they're, they're thinking about greatness. They're thinking, okay, Jesus has talked about the kingdom of heaven. We want to be greatest because that's kind of what we work for here on earth, all right? And we've got to do something to, to get there, 
okay? They've, they've got this mindset that if you want high standing with God, you better do something to make you stand out. And this is a big deal because the, the disciples on a sincere level want to do great things for God, but their mindset of how it all works is, is, is flawed. And so they're, they're thinking about the kingdom of heaven and thinking, okay, a kingdom, and they're looking out, you know, across the different kingdoms that they know of, and they think, okay, there's two variables. You've got a king, and then you've got everybody else, tier by tier by tier, from the top to the bottom, separated by what you've done, separated by what you've achieved, what you have or have not accomplished for God. And they work up the courage to ask Jesus. They've been bickering about this, you know, fighting back and forth just like men do. You know, Matthew's yelling at Mark, Mark's yelling at Luke, Luke's yelling at John. Peter comes into the conversation and is like, guys, I'm already like 10 steps ahead of all of you. And those 10 steps happened on water, all right? I walk with Jesus on water. He drops the mic and walks away, okay? And Jesus responds in verse 2, not with any words yet, not by saying anything, but rather Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Stop right there. The disciples have seen the way that Jesus works. They've got to be thinking in their heads, here we go again. Dear Lord, like literally, dear Lord. He's right in front of them. Okay, thought that was, that was like my favorite joke. Okay, here we go. Like, here it goes again. Like, we're looking for one name, maybe two names, maybe a group of names here, Jesus. Like, we don't need this whole illustration. Like, no need to go into a weekend training right now. Just, just throw us a couple names. Let us know who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus responds, I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So, anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus understands where they're coming from. They post a particular question, but Jesus sees through to the problem. I want to encourage you today. It's, it's hard when Jesus doesn't answer our questions, but oftentimes Jesus is trying to get through this, and it's like, I know that's what you think you need right now, but I know what the problem is. I know what the issue is. And so he says, okay, I, I get this. I get why this is important to you. I get your background. I get your perspective, okay? But your understanding of greatness is completely flawed. In fact, your understanding of the kingdom of God is so wrong. And if you continue to think and live in, in this way, you're going to miss it. And so he says, let me enlighten you. If you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to humble yourself like a little child. In fact, if you even just want to get in, you've got to be like a little child. And the disciples, you know, their jaws dropped, just as mine did when I read this. I'm like, okay, what is it Jesus is trying to get across here? What, what, what are we supposed to take from kids? Like, you know, the disciples are probably seeing this kid, you know, standing before him. They're like, okay, what is it about him that you want to apply to our lives? What are you trying to challenge us with, okay? And for some of us, Maybe for some of you who love kids, um, this, is an easy, this is an easy deal. You're like, Jake, this is, this is simple. Like, we just need to watch and observe children and all the wonderful splendor that they are and just start applying their behavior and, and their mindset to our own lives. It's really 
not all that deep. And I'm sorry, like, am I the only one that has concerns about that? Like, am I the only one that has been walking through Kroger and, and seen what happens between children and their parents? And sure, there's a lot of, you know, happy kids running along, but then you have the select few parents that actually say the word no. And the havoc that happens after that word is uttered. And so I've got some concerns. And again, you're looking at me and you're like, Jake, are you a parent? And I would say no. Well, then you don't have our perspective. I'm like, okay. So I was wrestling with that this last week. All right, I don't have the perspective of a parent. I need to, I need to figure this out. I need to see what is it about children that God wants me to get. So I start, you know, looking at uh, videos on YouTube of little children. Which by, now that I say that, that sounds <laughs> totally creepy. All right. <laughs> All right, we'll just uh, pretend that not, did not happen. All right, so I'm, I'm, get, get track with me here. All right, I'm on YouTube watching funny videos of kids. Okay, I'm watching everything from uh, Charlie bit my finger, you know. It's like, okay. I'm watching the one about the little kid, the little zombie kid that was interviewed at, a, at some sort of thing, and his response is, I like totals. Like, just, oh, that's so cute. I'm watching the one of the little girl, a baby girl, who is laughing hysterically because her dog is eating popcorn. And so I'm like, okay, I'm tracking. Maybe this is right. Maybe we're just supposed to watch kids and just apply everything that they do towards our relationship with God. And then I see this video. Okay, can we roll this real quick? Come on, hurry up. Stella, it's not okay to scream. I don't, I'm not calling your dad. Sweetie, are you okay? Monday. It's Monday, Grant. I had that stuff on rewind. Like, I put together, like, a mix of that with, like, you know, you've seen, like, the hip-hop mixes, like, witcher, witcher, bump, you know, hitting her face into the wall. So can you understand where my concern is with this whole concept of being like little children? I love what the mom says there. She says, it's a Monday. It's just a Monday. If I'm the dad, I'm home Tuesday through Sundays, okay? (laughs) Like, that is alarming. The anger within that face, okay? In all seriousness, let's get on the same page. Kids can teach us a lot of lessons. All right, I get that. If you're a parent, I know that your children have taught you hundreds and hundreds of valuable lessons about not only life, but your relationship with God. And that's awesome. But I believe that there is one characteristic that every single child has had since the beginning of time, regardless of whether the the funny kids or, you know, the oblivious kids or, you know, the crabby kids, every single child has had this characteristic. They don't address it and they don't voice it. But something that we see every time your children are hungry. It's something that you see every single time that they are hurt and they smash their face into a wall. Every single time that that they're sad, every single time that they try to get ready for, for school, it is the fact that every single child is 100% absolutely and completely dependent upon their mother and father. And all the parents said, amen. And Jesus is looking at them, and he's like, okay, this is what it's like. You've got to become like a little child. The question that I have for you this morning, and that I believe that we have got to constantly ask ourselves, is who are you 
running to? Who are you running to? Jesus came into the world not with a mission to be just a great teacher. The world, people that don't know and love Jesus Christ um, on a son of God level, accept that. Okay, they may have a problem with the whole God thing, but they're cool with accepting Jesus as a great teacher. I mean, he, he supplies us with 365 days of Facebook posts, okay? Like, you know, it's just all these quotes. Believe it or not, he had a big, big vision and purpose. And he had the sole purpose of being sent here to redefine and redeem a broken relationship and a broken and, and faulty understanding that we have with God. He came to completely change the way that we think about this relationship. And the disciples bring to him this question and this argument, but Jesus sees through it. He knows what they want to hear, but he sees through it and he identifies their problem, which is their perspective. And he sees that it's the product of a warped religious system that says worth is based on works. Greatness is is based on performance. And if you want a right relationship with God, you have to earn it. So Jesus brings in a little child into the room in front of them and says, just like a child, you've got to become completely dependent upon your father. I get it. I know why you're thinking this way. You've been taught to earn your relationship with God, but in fact, all you have to do is rely completely on God and his grace that has covered you and has redeemed this relationship that you have. Become like a little child. Little, child don't, little children don't think about greatness. Why? Because they don't have to achieve anything. They're not trying to work anything. Everything's handed to them. They don't worry uh, about stuff. They're not consumed with the concept of obtaining things or or, or working because their parents provide everything that they need. Everything that they want, they find from their parents. And Jesus is saying, you've got to be just like that. You've got to stop working for this. You've got to stop trying to earn this relationship, but in contrast, depend upon your heavenly Father. And the world that we live in today is not so different from what the disciples knew. Okay, I get it, like, if the disciples were here in 2015, they'd be like, whoa, this is crazy. I get that culture and all this kind of stuff. But the understanding was the same. We have the understanding that if you work hard enough, you can do anything. You can make it. If you put your head down and you grind it out, you can achieve. As children, we are taught to become and grow more independent from our parents. It's not cool to live at home and have your parents do your laundry when you're 40. Like, that's not okay here in America. And trust me, I pushed that one as far as I could. Jesus doesn't come to destroy and tear down that system but rather say, okay, I know that's how you operate here. You can't apply that earthly perspective to a relationship with your heavenly Father. They are not the same. They are in no way connected. And if you miss this, if you keep thinking that you can do anything to get there, 
you're not going to make it. But even as Christians, what do we do? We try to take things into our own hands. We continue to try to achieve his acceptance and earn his approval. And as we do that, we oftentimes take on this false mindset of, I can handle things. That there's a few things that, that I can do by myself. I, I do need God for this. I definitely need God for eternity. I get that. I understand that. So I've asked Jesus Christ to come into my life, and I've asked God to come into my vehicle and take the driver's seat. But I feel like Jesus is, is beckoning us, and he's saying, okay, that's great that you've put me in the driver's seat, but please stop trying to give me directions. This is great, this whole God's got me covered, he's got eternity. You're good at this, God, but I've got goals. I wrote them down, I planned it out. It looks legitimate. Sure, some of them you know, are a little bit you know, greater than what I think I'm gonna be able to put together, but I, 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 I've got this. I've got pretty good insight about this, God. And we say, okay, God, I want you to take the driver's you know, seat. You're, you're in control. You're going to cover the gas, right? Okay, cool. If, if we need maintenance, like you're going to cover the oil changes, right? If we get into an accident, you've got insurance, right, that's going to pick that up, right? And the entire time trying to give God directions, breaking away from this concept of complete and utter dependence upon him. How foolish is it when little children think that they don't need their parents? You who are parents, you've seen it firsthand. You've got a sinful nature that starts early. And I remember being a kid, getting in a fight with my parents. And so what do you do? You pack up your little backpack at five years old with all your toys, and you start trucking down the driveway. Peace. And you get down to the edge of the driveway, and you realize you don't know where the park is. And so you turn right back around. I've seen this happen in your children, okay? Get this. I love it when you courageous parents let your little four-year-old dress themselves for church. And you walk in, and I I look down at your four-year-old and their awesome choice of clothing. And I look up at you, and you're shaking your heads, saying, they insisted that they dress themselves. And far too often as Christians, we insist, God, let me take this. God, I, I don't need you for this one. And like a gentleman, he allows us to go our way. All right, you think you got this? All right, you want to dress yourself? All right, go on. And we work and we work and we work and then we hit that wall. And we realize that we've got to pull a big U-turn. And there we are standing with two different shoes on, our jeans on backwards, wondering where we went wrong. Who are you running to? I don't have this perspective of a parent. We've already established that. But I can imagine because although I've never been a parent, I was once a child and still very much am. And I was thinking back to my relationship with my parents. I have two loving parents that to this day just take care of me. And and when I go home, I like to just kind of pretend that I'm five. And when I'm hungry, I just yell, Mom! You know, and it still works. It's magical that way. But I'm thinking back, you know, to when I was a kid. And 
thinking from the perspective of me being completely dependent upon them. And for whatever reason, like, this story jumps out to me. I remember being 12 years old, which, first of all, 12-year-olds are way more independent than, like, 4-year-old, okay? Which is what many scholars believe was the age of this child, okay? But I'm 12 years old, and I'm on my mini bike, which my mom doesn't want me to have. I'm decked out in camo gear, okay, because you can't be riding a hog, you know, wearing some shorts. you got to be decked out in camo gear. I was constantly within character as a kid, hardly ever myself. I, you know, did the soldier, the police officer, you know, the grandma with a machine gun, you know, hidden up her dress, and I'd rob my parents. No, I did not wear dresses as a child, okay. And I'm trucking along, and my parents have bought 19 acres, and I'm heading out towards the edge of the property, and I take a turn too fast, which is hard to believe because... The minibike only went like 10 miles per hour, but whatever. I slide out, and the minibike falls on my left leg. And I very quickly jump up, and I reach down to grab the handlebars because I know if my mom sees that I got in an accident, that minibike's getting taken away. So I reach down towards the handlebars, and I look at my leg, and I get a glimpse of my leg in a way that I never had seen before. And I'm going to try to keep this as least graphic and PG as possible, but there's a hole in my leg. There's a hole in my calf. The the kickstand had punctured my leg. Okay, and I know this is church. You shouldn't. I'm the one that had to deal with this. This happened to me, okay? So just, we can get over it just for a second, okay? And of course, like any 12-year-old or any person, really, you freak out. And I immediately turn from where I'm at towards my parents' house and start trucking, yelling, dragging my leg along, mom, help, mom, mom, help. I finally climb up the top of the porch and I'm at the sliding doors and this is where I'd love to lie for the benefit of my mother, but I'm standing at the sliding doors and there's my mom and my younger sister Susan laughing at me laughing at me because for the last minute they have been watching me dragging my leg crying towards the house and they think I'm crying wolf which I did all the time so it was merited but then finally my mom looks down at my leg probably said something she shouldn't have said and rushes me to the hospital I get stitched up and I was fine as I'm thinking back on that story I can now remember where my accident was, and what's interesting is, is that I have my parents' house here, and about the same proximity from where I was at to my parents' house was my neighbor's house. Same distance, just over the hill. Not for a second, did I, it didn't even occur to me that there was another option. As soon as I realized that I had hurt myself, there was one thing in my mind, I've got to get to my mom. I've got to get to my dad. I didn't stop and, oh, there's my neighbor's house. They'll be home. I'll climb up the hill, roll down the rest of it, and I'll get there faster. There was not another option. It was my parents, and and there were no alternatives. You see this in your kids, right? Every time that your kids, especially like three-year-old, four-year-old, start crying, who do they want and who will they settle for? Nothing but mom or dad. I try as much as possible. Like, you know, Pastor Kyle, he's got Maddox. He's so cute right now. Okay, and I'll be over at their house and he'll be crying and I want to feel this like father-like feeling. So I'm like, come here, baby. And so I, you know, grab him and he's crying and screaming. I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. And he's trying to get out of, dude, you're not dad. I don't know a lot of things, but you're not dad. I've got to get out of your arms. 
do we have other options? Are we developing other options for ourselves? For every single need, every want, every desire, for your direction, for the circumstance that is, seems to be pinning you down, are we looking for options either within ourselves or to other people? I believe that Jesus is saying, man, you've got to become like a little child. They don't know a lot. Some of them are happy. Some are really crabby. I hope I get one of the happy ones. But one thing remains the same is that they're completely dependent upon their parents. Would you just completely depend upon me for everything, even the stuff that you don't think I care about? As a parent, I can only imagine that there's some stuff that, like, I don't care about, like with your kids, but because they are your kids, you do, and you take interest in that because they're a child. They didn't do anything to deserve it. What did your children do to get you to provide for them, to love them, and care for them? Nothing. They just simply are your kids, and that's what Jesus is saying. You want to get into the kingdom of God? You've got to become like a child and realize that your heavenly father just accepts you because you're his child. That's it. So stop working. Stop trying. How about you cast all your cares on him? Who are you running to? And maybe you're here today, and I've been in this place before where you know who God is, and you might even say that, you know, he, he's in control of your life. But something happened, and that relationship and that trust was broken. And so you depend upon him for your needs, but as far as direction, man, I don't think I can trust where you're going. I'd like to just for a second describe your heavenly father and the type of love that he has for you, and this is probably not new to you, but we have a heavenly father that loves you and me so much that he sent his only son. If you're a parent, imagine the type of love that it would have to take for you to send, not yourself, but you send your son you love so much into a broken and fallen world, a heavenly father that allows his son and then to be beaten and tortured and whipped and a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, a heavenly father that loves you so, so much that he let them force Jesus to carry a cross up a hill to a place where he would inevitably be nailed to it and die so that he could redefine and redefine deem this relationship. That's how much it means to him. And three days later, miraculously, Jesus comes alive again, conquering the grave, conquering death, and covering a debt that you and I could never repay. He's simply saying, would you stop trying to pay it? Like, I've got it. It's on my tab. Stop trying to pick it up. You need me? Would you just run to me? Every single time. Every single time something pops in your mind and you become stressed out. Why don't children worry? Because they've got their parents. If I have a care, if I have a need, I run to him and say, will you just run to me? Cast all your cares on me. If you want something and you're concerned about your future, would you just run to me? Cast that on me. I've got it. Depend upon me.